Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 3rd, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We will not have a very long presentation this evening, so I will ask you to forgive me for that. It is not because we only got home two days ago after being on the road for nearly five weeks, but mostly because we would not have time to finish what remains of our presentation of Caius Fabricius's Positive Christianity in the Third Reich. Tonight we shall finish with part two of the second half of Fabricius's booklet and leave the final and third part for next week. We had originally planned on finishing this entire booklet in perhaps four sessions, and now we know we will have seven. Yahweh willing, there won't be an eighth one. We should be able to finish it next week. I would like to um, reiterate the fact that presenting Fabricius's positive Christianity in the Third Reich, we at Christianity.org do not worship the Third Reich. We do not worship, worship Adolf Hitler. We do not worship any man or any state. We only look forward to the kingdom of God and Yahshua the Christ. We do this so that we may correct the historical record. Because all identity Christians, and in fact all Christians, should know that National Socialist Germany was the last truly Christian crusade in our history. The international Jew coaxed and goaded the English and Americans into siding with the communist Russia and the Jews. And yes, Stalin was indeed a Jew, a racial Jew, and in bed with Jews, in bed with religious Jews. We sided with the communist Jews and with international Jewry in the destruction of our own Christian brethren. That's important to know. Repentance before God requires observation and confession of our sins. We need to set the historical record straight. First, we would like to thank all of the excellent Christian identity brethren that we had the honor to stay with during our recent five-week trip. The bonds. Bob in Pennsylvania, Debbie and Pastor Mark Downey, and of course, Clifton Emma Heiser. I also want to thank Pastor Don Elmore for having me speak at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People, not only for his regular Sunday service, but also for much of a Wednesday Bible study. Additionally, we are thankful to God for all of the wonderful Christian identity brethren whom we saw along the way 
many whom we already knew and many whom we met for the first time. We would also like to thank all of the brethren who helped us through our trying transportation issues, which were well beyond any expectation or troubles that we could have anticipated before we set off on our travels. Melissa and I are planning two other trips this year, and we, we, we will probably take a third shorter trip north in mid-September. We're planning two other trips this year. One is far as Shreveport, Louisiana, and another one later in the year, or perhaps in early January, which, provided Yahweh God is willing, will bring us at least as far west as Nevada. As our plans solidify and the dates get closer, I will make announcements for anyone who may want to see us along the way. In the meantime, while we are truly blessed to be able to fellowship with so many wonderful Christian brethren, it is good to be back in our own home, and it will be good to be back on our regular program schedule. Before we begin tonight, I'm going to read the foreword to the book Inside the Third Reich, which is presumably the memoirs of Albert Speer. a member of Adolf Hitler's cabinet, a longtime friend of Adolf Hitler, who was sentenced to prison after the Nuremberg trials. And the foreword to his book, which was presumably written by Speer, says, and it opens with a quote, I suppose you'll be writing your memoirs now said one of the first Americans I met in Flensburg in May 1945. Since then, 24 years have passed, of which I spent 21 in a prison cell, a long time. Now, I am publishing my memoirs, Speer says. And he says, I have tried to describe the past as I experienced it. Many will think it distorted. Now, why would Speer be concerned with that before he publishes his memoirs? We have our own reasons for believing that he should have been concerned because his memoirs were indeed distorted, and purposely so. And for that reason, he expressed this concern in the foreword to his book. He says, many will think it distorted, Many will find my perspective wrong. That may or may not be so. I have set forth what I experienced and the way I regard it today. In doing so, I have tried not to falsify the past. My aim has been not to gloss over either what was fascinating or what was horrible about those years. Other participants will criticize me, but that is unavoidable. I have tried to be honest which indicates that perhaps he was not honest under the pressure that he was under. He goes on to say, one of the purposes of these memoirs is to reveal some of the premises which almost inevitably led to the disasters in which that period culminated. I have sought to show what came of one man's holding unrestricted power in his hand and to clarify the nature of this man. 
In court at Nuremberg, I said that if Hitler had any friends, I would have been his friend. I owe to him the enthusiasms and the glory of my youth, as well as the belated horror and guilt. And a man who is defeated, standing up for a noble cause, surely does not feel guilt. Steer goes on to say, in the description of Hitler, he showed himself to me and others. A good, many likable traits will appear. He may seem to be a man capable and devoted in many respects, but the more I wrote, the more I felt that these were only superficial traits. So Spear is actually denying the genuineness of Adolf Hitler. He goes on to say, for such impressions were countered by one forgettable experience, the Nuremberg trial. I shall never forget the account of a Jewish family going to their deaths, the husband with his wife and children on the way to die are before my eyes to this day. In Nuremberg, I was sentenced to 20 years' imprisonment. The military tribunal may have been faulty in summing up history, but it attempted to apportion guilt. The penalty, however poorly such penalties measure historical responsibility, ended my civil existence. But that scene had already laid waste to my life. It has outlasted the verdict of the court. I didn't get, um, I didn't do 21 years in prison, but I did over half that length. A condemned man, condemned by his government. I cannot sympathize with Albert Speer. Albert Speer is obviously, to me, a sellout. He's a total sellout. He sold out to the ambitions and insistences of the Jews against the truth. Now, I have seen quotes from this book that are used by white nationalists in order to support some imagined national socialist antipathy towards Christianity. However, here it is evident that whether Albert Speer wrote this or whether, as I suspect, it was written for him, the book is without a doubt a propaganda vehicle created in order to convey the idea that the Nuremberg trials were legitimate and that there really was a Holocaust of the Jews and that Adolf Hitler was indeed some sort of disingenuous monster. In other words, the Spear book substantiates every lie which the Jews claim to be true. In reality, it is a disgrace that a white man would even quote from such a source without realizing that it is mere propaganda, and that by quoting it, he is actually assisting the Jewish devils in the destruction of the white race. There have been many such documents created by Jews in order to deceive whites and to advance their own agendas. Unless a document 
has an established provenance that precedes the end of the war, and it puts that document soundly in German hands before the end of the war, then it is not to be trusted as worthy of inclusion in the white nationalist dialogue. That includes another such supposedly original but highly dubious work, which is called Hitler's Table Talk, which was allegedly the notes of Martin Bormann. The Jews of Alexandria attempted to do the same thing to Christianity in its early years that they have recently done to National Socialism, revised it after the fact. In the second century AD, realizing that they could not eradicate Christianity, they decided to attempt to corrupt it with the creation of a so-called Christian Gnosticism and a plethora of documents which claimed to be Christian, but which were actually a series of Jewish novels having Christian names. Among these are the so-called Gospels of Judas Iscariot, Thomas, Peter, and Mary Magdalene. Every one of them is a Jew fantasy. This creation of distraction is an ages-old Jewish tactic, and white men must become aware of it and the Jewish motives behind it if they are to ever to learn the truth about history. When the Jews failed to destroy Christianity by inciting the Romans to persecute it, and when they failed to destroy Christianity by manufacturing documents to discredit it, they sought to destroy it by creating Mohammedism and militarizing the non-white Arabs and then the Turks to invade and destroy the Christian world. The Jews did better later in history when upon learning to play the pious and eternal victims, they managed to infiltrate Christianity to the point where they are finally destroying it in these last 200 years, or so they think. <laughs> excuse, excuse me. This is part six in our series of presentations of Caius Fabricius's Positive Christianity in the Third Reich. And we have been presenting the second half of this booklet, which is entitled The Christian Foundations of National Socialism. During the course of these presentations, several things have been brought to our attention which supposedly prove that National Socialism was not Christian, but that it was instead anti-Christian. They really had a secret plot to replace some new pagan religion in all the churches, to replace German Christianity with this new Nazi paganism. And that's just bullshit. First, there is the supposed 30-point program of Alfred Rosenberg, proposing the elimination of Christianity and Christian symbols in churches, and a replacement with some new national German church based on a sort of Nazi paganism. So far as we know, this program was first published in Life magazine in November of 1941, and it was part of the Jewish propaganda campaign to alienate the people of the West, who were for the most part Christian, against National Socialist Germany. 
Nothing like the Spear program was ever implemented in National Socialist policy. And quite to the contrary, the Germans occupying Ukraine in 1942 were restoring to Christian service the Christian churches which had long been closed by the Bolsheviks. And they were also restoring Orthodox Christian bishops to their former place in Ukrainian communities. We have um, proof in plaques at the Mein Kampf project at Christiania. And this proof in plaques shows beyond doubt that in Kiev, the Soviets, the Bolsheviks, had closed the churches, had used them for theaters and warehouses while they left the synagogues open. But in 1942, after the National Socialist Germans maintained, gained and maintained control of Ukraine, they closed the synagogues and opened the churches, restoring them to their former position in the communities which they had before the Bolsheviks took over. After Spear, there are the supposed directions issued by Heinrich Himmler, which codified in rituals the SS glorification of the individual German family. Even if this were so, and it appears to be so, it does not truly conflict with real Christianity at all. Regardless of whether the so-called Christian churches agree, eradication of Protestant and Catholic rituals, which are supposedly Christian, does not conflict with true Christianity because those rituals aren't really Christian at all. And the Christian Bible actually demands that Christians have reverence for and honor their families as well as their ancestors. In fact, the Christian Bible tells us that the way to honor our ancestors is by raising faithful children. The way to raise faithful children is to keep them in tune with the past history of their race and their nation. The way to raise faithful children is to keep them aware of the heritage they receive from their ancestors. And, in view of Christianity, the way to raise faithful children means having children that are not mongrels. The problems with interpreting such things as the supposed 30 points of, I'm sorry, not Spear, of, of Alfred Rosenberg, and the family rituals which Heinrich Himmler advised his SS officers to conduct in their homes. The problems with interpreting such things are many. First, much of the anti-Christian rhetoric attributed to the Nazis 
is merely propaganda which was invented during the war by the Jewish media. And then after the war, it was forged into supposedly national socialist memoirs and other writings, like Cable Talk and Alfred Speer. Albert Speer. This is the work of the Jew, who is intent on destroying true Christianity, and who is using all of the media and publishing and other tools at his disposal in order to realize the fulfillment of such objectives. Secondly, the modern churches which have long been corrupted by the Jews, are not Christian themselves. And they deny the National Socialists, who were real Christians. The churches may claim that their holidays and rituals are Christian, but none of those holidays or rituals are actually found in the Bible. The churches may claim that some of their practices are Christian, but a close examination shows that those practices are merely ancient pagan customs which were long ago given a Christian name and face. The churches use language which seems to be Christian, but in reality, much of that language is absolutely contradictory to the Bible. A close examination further reveals that true Christianity is something which the organized churches have never actually practiced. Although, in the dispensations of their rituals, they, transmit, they did transmit the only aspect of their function, which Hitler saw as being truly useful, and that was basic Christian morality. Without Christian morality as the basis for our foundation, uh, as the basis for our society, we have nothing. But thirdly, the National Socialists were real Christians. Whether or not they were aware of that fact, that while the churches of Germany were not Christian at all, this is a true statement in spite of the fact that neither National Socialists nor German churchmen would have ever understood it. And that is because the churches never really understood Christianity while the National Socialists had actually practiced Christianity. The churches would have denied National Socialism, but the churches never understood the Christian Bible, and they still do not understand it today so they still despise National Socialism. While Adolf Hitler saw the need for the German Christian churches in their dispensation of Christian morals, he understood that the universalist teachings of the churches were contrary to the well-being of the German nation and race. He commented on that problem at length in Mein Kampf. Many National Socialist leaders also knew that the universalist dogma of the churches was contrary to the health of the German people, and they despised the churches for it. However, none of that, none of that universalism of the churches can be blamed on true Christianity. 
What Hitler and the other National Socialist leaders did not know is that true Christianity is not universalist. Rather, they only took for granted the ages-old lies of the universalist churches. However, no denial of the churches by National Socialists can ever strip National Socialism of its Christian foundations. And no denial of the churches can ever make National Socialism unchristian. The fact is that National Socialism was founded upon basic Christian principles in both the social and the economic spheres in spite of the dogmas of the churches which are not Christian at all. Once those aspects are illustrated, which we have already outlined here, they certainly cannot be changed or denied. They are woven into the foundational fabric of National Socialism as much as they are woven into the foundational fabric of Christianity in the words of Christ our Redeemer. There was a third aspect of National Socialism which was founded upon Christian principles. And they are Christian principles which the so-called Christian churches never shared because the Christian church, the Catholic church, was only a new manifestation of imperial Rome. And imperialism cannot be racist. So the church was always universal in spite of the fact that Christianity is indeed racist. That third aspect is the political expression of nationalism, which National Socialism had. Now, this is readily denied by the churches, but the churches are blind to Christian nationalism, and they always have been. The denial of the churches, however, cannot change the facts expressed in Christian scripture. The Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, from front to back, is the story of a single family and the relationship of that family to the wider Adamic race. However, what this means to the world today is not discovered until one studies enough ancient history to recognize the fact that the Adamic race is indeed congruent to what we call the white race. All of those original nations from the Genesis chapter 10 table of nations were white every one of them, and the non-white races were never included in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, when they are mentioned, they're usually mentioned as a plague, a curse. All of the modern white nations can be traced back to ancient Mesopotamia, the Near East, the Middle East, and those very same Genesis chapter 10 nations. The dominant tribes of the white nations of history 
can all be traced back to the tribes of the ancient Israelites who have inherited the promises of the Hebrew Bible. Only the treachery and deceit of those calling themselves Jews today, who are neither Judah nor Israel, keeps the world from understanding these things. And the war waged against Christianity and our race by the Jews for the last several thousand years has been a war to exterminate these truths. This war started with the persecutions of early Christians by the Romans and earlier Christian writers such as Tertullian and Minucius Felix have attested that those persecutions were all instigated by the Jews. It is not our intent here to teach our foundations in Christian identity as opposed to the falsely universalist doctrines of the churches. However, the proofs that the promises of Christianity are centered around this same family which had received them in the histories of the Old Testament are found throughout both the Old and New Testaments. We read in Jeremiah chapter 30, over 600 years before Christ, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I will make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Likewise, we read in Amos chapter 3, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. When these words were written, most of the dominant tribes of recent white history did not yet exist. Most of the white nations of today did not even exist. And the nations of the ancient world, the nations, the white nations which were prominent at the time these words were written, have since been overrun by the other white nations, by the other non-white nations, and they have all fallen permanently into the slime of this planet. Egypt, Assyria, Persia. In Acts chapter 27, in James chapter 1, in Revelation chapter 12, all these New Testament books, the promises of Christianity are accounted for the 12 tribes of Israel. Those same people scattered many centuries before the time of Christ. In Malachi chapter 4, in a messianic prophecy, we read that the will of God is to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. It is no mistake that these words are the last words we see in what is called the Old Testament. 
Then in the opening of the Gospel, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 1, we read that the purpose of Christ was, in part, that God has visited and redeemed his people, and none of them were Jews. Jesus denied the Jews again and again and again. As he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began, concerning those people that he scattered hundreds of years before the Jews even existed as a nation. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. This is the foundation upon which European Christian society was built. So when Paul of Tarsus brought Christianity to the nations of Europe, Paul asserted that he was bringing a message of reconciliation to the long-scattered children of Israel, who were indeed descended from those same fathers of the promise of which Luke had written. Paul makes these assertions from a historical perspective in Romans chapters 1, 4, and 9, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. Yet, to see the truth of what Paul said, one must study classical and ancient history as Paul himself had done. However, the Universalist churches have historically denied the necessity of that study. And therefore, they have long attempted to explain away and even repudiate the racial nature of the promises of Christian scripture. Where Paul said, all men, and where today's churches say, all men, they both mean two different things. However, identity Christians do understand the message of the Bible for the genetic family of the faith in concert with the familial relationships of the white nations of Europe. Therefore, where Paul said in his epistle to the Galatians that they should do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of the faith. Identity Christians understand that by household, where the Greek word oikaios means family, Paul had once again assured us that the promises of God remain to this particular family of 12 tribes, from whom most whites of today have at least in part descended. There are many such assurances in the New Testament which are ignored or repudiated by the churches. But that does not make the real meanings of such passages null and void. The churches, no matter what they can profess, cannot change the word of God. So where national socialism was racist, and where national socialists understand the importance of maintaining the integrity of the family and the nation so do identity Christians. But where national socialists may not have understood these things, within the context of real Christianity, 
identity Christians do understand these things within that context. And we can therefore see that national socialists were much better Christians than the dupes inside of the Universalist churches, even if they themselves did not know it. Here we shall continue with the second half of Caius Fabricius's Positive Christianity in the Third Reich, which is titled The Christian Foundations of National Socialism. We have already presented the portions subtitled Kinship with God and Dominion over the World. And we are now at the beginning of the third section of that portion, which is subtitled Love for One's Neighbor. The first two sections we have already discussed, which were love, justice, honor, and help in word and deed. Now, finally, we shall present the third section of Fabricius's discussion of National Socialist Love for One's Neighbor, which is Family, Nation, Mankind. And as an identity Christian, I would limit the notion of mankind to our white race, while universalist Christians do not have the study and the historical context necessary to understand such a limitation. And Fabricius says... The question now remains to be answered respecting the attitude of Christianity and National Socialism towards the various social circles which have arisen in the human race and are due partly to its nature and partly to its historical development. Such communities formed by man are to be found in plenty and either include or intersect each other. Three of these are of fundamental importance, namely the family, the nation, and mankind. And here it must be pointed out, as we have explained at length earlier in these presentations, that the biblical context of the word for neighbor, as it appears in that scripture from Leviticus chapter 19, which is so often quoted in the New Testament, shows that the word for neighbor refers to one of the children of thy people. The word for neighbor cannot be taken out of that context in which the Bible itself defines it. It can only refer to one of the children of thy people, only one of the children of one's own people can be one's neighbor. That is also the meaning of the actual Hebrew word, which is translated neighbor, which is a pastoral term, which refers to one who is of the same flock. 
if one is not of your flock, if he is not one of the children of your people, he cannot properly be your neighbor. The wolf who moves into the sheepfold and begins feeding off the sheep cannot be a neighbor to the sheep, even if he's living in the same pasture. It is incredibly ignorant and short-sighted of white Christians to accept niggers for neighbors or anybody of any other race. Fabricius continues by saying, at this point, there would appear to be an important difference between the attitude of Christianity and that of National Socialism so that the question might well be asked whether a certain amount of opposition might not even exist between them, or, at any rate, if it is at all possible at this important point to speak of Christianity as the basis of National Socialism. And this is a big problem, even with Caius Fabricius. Fabricius was a trained church theologian, so he mistook the dogmas of his church organization for Christianity because that was the way he was trained. He continues by saying, the difference which appears to be here might be expressed somewhat as follows. The Christian standpoint is international. That of national socialism, national. And we would agree if we limit international to those 12 tribes who are the recipients of the promises of Christianity. He continues by saying, this manner of contrasting the two, however, is based on a serious confusion of ideas. Already there is an internationalism and a nationalism sharply opposed to each other. And of course he's talking about the internationalism of the Jews. Philosophy has long put forward the indistinct conception of mind in which not only all the differences between human individuals disappear, but also the differences between communities, and that's Jewish egalitarian, egalitarian national, internationalism. He continues by saying, this idea about mind which has developed new power since the age of reason, and has formed since the age of technics a substantial foundation through world intercourse, dominates Marxism and is the aim of Bolshevism, whose wish is the dissolution of the family and the nations through a world revolution in which mankind in general shall flourish. In other words, the Jews will flourish, and the rest of us, goyim, will suffer. On the other hand, there is a view of nationalism narrow in its outlook, not so prevalent in Germany as in other lands. Men holding this point of view consider their own nation to be the best amongst the nations of the earth, and with smiling superiority, they look down on all others. 
It even happens that a nation regards itself as the chosen people called upon to rule the others. Sounds like the Jews or the English. Or to be the most important in this world. A sharp distinction, therefore, must be made between these two very limited points of view and Christianity and National Socialism. The situation is rather this. From what we have already discussed, it is obvious that neither the Christian religion nor National Socialism exists on mere conceptions or is governed by one-sided theories. Rather, do both rely upon the living fullness of reality. For this reason, both respect the graded circles in the life of the human community with all their multiformity. And moreover, brotherly love does in no way abolish any one of the social circles, but expands, rather, within all the spheres of human community life. And indeed, a special power of love makes itself so strongly felt therein that it not only brings into harmony the wishes of individuals, but also the opposing claims of the various social circles. When we presented Martin Luther's on the Jews and their lies here at Christogenia last year, we demonstrated that even Luther, a man who had come to understand the treachery of the Jews to a great degree, was nevertheless infected with Jewish thinking because of the converso-Jewish influences upon him in his studies and that he had favorably quoted many converso Jews at length in his writing. He followed converso Jewish ideas. In the history of Christianity, it is clear that the references to the long-dispersed children of Israel as the family of God found in the white nations of Europe Things which Paul of Tarsus and the other apostles had taught were lost after the persecutions of Christians in the first two centuries. However, Christianity itself could not be wiped from the earth, no matter how hard the Jews had tried. And eventually, Rome succumbed to a universal form of Christianity, which was left after those persecutions. Caius Fabricius, as well as Martin Luther, was unaware of this history, which is indeed found in the Bible and perceived through a knowledge of classical and very ancient history, as it was also taught by Paul of Tarsus. So because Fabricius and most modern churchmen are unaware of the history. They blindly accept universalist interpretations of Christianity, even when those interpretations are refuted by the words of Christ himself and his apostles. Identity Christians accept both the history and the scripture and understand it as one confluent narrative which 
which very well explains the history and the origins of our presumably European white race. But here, Fabricius describes a Christianity which belongs not to the Bible, but to the churches which have accepted the Marxist paradigm of internationalism. The churches accepted that paradigm long before Marx himself existed. Because, as we have pointed out, so many prominent churchmen, both before and after the time of Luther, had been accepting the biblical commentaries of converso Jews such as Paul of Burgos and Nicholas of Lyra. And these men lived several hundred years before Luther. They wrote and their commentaries became popular in Christian churches several hundred years before Luther. They were converso Jews, and they poisoned Christianity. By the time of the 13th century, 14th century, it was over. The Marxist paradigm of internationalism is a Jewish paradigm. It is much older than Christianity, and it has left nations infected with Talmudic Jewish thinking long before the Talmud was even written. The Bible calls it Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon is the name for Marxist internationalism. 2,500 years before Marx, whereas the God of the Bible insisted that the nations be separated. Paul himself said in Acts chapter 17 that it was the God of the Bible who made all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he's referring to the white nations, those Genesis 10 nations. And that that same God of the Bible had determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. It's the God of the Bible that created the boundaries between nations. The God of the Bible created nationalism. Paul was referring to Genesis chapter 11 and to Deuteronomy 32.8. And therefore, Christianity... is nationalist. Christianity is nationalist, and Christianity is racist. However, the racism of Christianity is expressed in different terms, terms like fornication. In order to understand it, one must understand both the Old and the New Testaments. And the church repudiates knowledge of the Old Testament. And most white people repudiate the Old Testament as Jewish, but it's anything but Jewish. It's Aryan. In Micah chapter 6, which is in the Old Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 2, in Jude verse 11, and in Revelation chapter 2, we see condemnations of what is called the doctrine of Balaam the error 
of Balaam, or the way of Balaam. All of these are references to the trap which was thrown before the men of Israel, as it is described in Numbers chapter 25, where they were seduced into joining themselves to the daughters of Moab. And they were therefore smitten with a plague. The noble Phineas put a stop to the plague which befell Israel when he set an example and began to execute the race mixers. Paul of Tarsus alluded to this same event and warned against repeating it, where he called it fornication in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul called Esau the real father of today's Jews, he called him a fornicator because he too was a race mixer. Therefore, Christianity is racist and it warns against race mixing in very explicit language. In fact, where fornication is mentioned of Jezebel, who's an allegory, for fornicators in Revelation chapter 2, the punishment for fornication is to kill the children. The words of Jesus Christ, I will kill her children because she's a fornicator. She's a race mixer. Therefore, Christianity is racist, and it warns very explicitly against race mixing. But the churches deny this, even though the Bible makes it very clear. Since the churchmen began accepting the commentaries of the converso Jews in the 13th century, the churches had been instruments in the hands of the kinsmen of Marx. And they were Marxist internationalists even long before Marx himself had come along. Caius Fabricius did his best here to explain the apparent discrepancy between National Socialism and what the churches were teaching in this regard. But being a man trained by the Universalist churches and not having what identity Christians know to be true Christianity, he could not deal with the apparent dilemma effectively enough. He nevertheless believed that mankind, where he would include all of the so-called races, could exist in harmony in a community of separate nations, which is somewhat better than most of the churches of his time would have taught. In this dim light and this partial understanding, he continues, and he says, this may be observed most clearly in the Christian and National Socialistic views on and treatment of the family. If the Christian point of view were strictly international, it would perforce deny and forbid the family as being a barrier to universal human contacts. National Socialism, too, would have to attempt to abolish family life if it were to affirm the standpoint of a limited view of nationalism. 
For it would, in that case, look upon family life as a hindrance to national unity. Neither is correct. In reality, the sanctity of marriage and family life has always been preached in Christian religion. And it is precisely the Christian message that has, in its very point, had an extraordinarily powerful influence on the moral education of the nations. National Socialism follows the same path in its message. The values of the family, the importance of the family, and the nation, which is really an extended family, these things are certainly Christian and are advocated by the Christian Bible. And Fabricius continues by saying, and since the assumption of power, new work has been done in this direction, which must certainly be called practical Christianity. In the preceding years, there had been a serious increase in the country of shattered marriages and ruined family lives which Christianity certainly eschews. National Socialism, however, now makes vigorous and successful efforts to enable marriages to take place, notwithstanding the outward poverty that still exists, and strives to build up large families as living cells of the organism of the folk. And just as the family would never be abolished for the sake of other social circles. So would Christianity never deny the folk for the sake of mankind, nor would National Socialism deny mankind for the sake of the folk. In the days of the early Christians, as has been proved by the New Testament, the national circumstances of the age were not overlooked or even rejected, but were recognized as permanent, and Christians were exhorted to submit to civil authority. And no matter how much we do not like it, Christians, as we have explained at length here, should see government as a punishment from God and... They are told to submit to civil authority. And this is true in the epistles of Paul, such as in Romans 13, as well as of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and in the Gospel of Christ. For example, in John chapter 19, verses 9 through 11, government is a punishment from God. Christians doing well should not fear government. Fabrigius continues by saying, to this very day the principle is to be found in the Christian confessions of faith that for Christians in civil life the laws of the state are authoritative, even though we know that the ultimate aim of Christianity is to form a Christian state, if we should call it a state if we have to use the word. And Fabricius says, and the practice of Christian brotherly love on that principle is bound to no particular social circle, has naturally not been chiefly international in its activities, 
but has concerned itself more especially with those living beside us, that is to say, with the members of the family and our fellow countrymen. And of course, in that aspect, Fabricius is also correct, that the family and the nation are indeed the focal points of true Christian community. Polytarsus said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, But if any man provides not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Again, that word for house is in Greek the word oikaios, which means a family. To show how far the Roman Catholic Church departed from basic Christian principles, one need look no further than 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul advised that any man who would be a bishop or a minister should have been a faithful husband of one wife, and also should have had the experience of raising a family himself, where Paul described one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man, if a man knows not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, no Catholic priest was ever permitted such an experience, and therefore none of them are qualified to lead a godly assembly. In fact, that is exactly why the Roman Catholic priesthood has historically attracted legions of perverts and sodomites into its ranks because it would not permit normal men who sought to have wives and children into the priesthood. What would we expect? The nation being an extension of the family, we once again see that Christianity is indeed nationalist. Christianity values the family and the family relations throughout the New Testament as well as the Old. Contrary to the Christian concept of the family unit, and the necessity of structurally sound families as the building blocks of the Christian community, we find the perverse ideas of the Jew outlined in the Communist Manifesto. Now, the real evil in the Communist Manifesto is not merely what is found in its proposed solutions to the perceived capitalist society, as if European society was merely capitalist before Marx came along. But the real evil is found in its mischaracterization of European society. The following is from the Communist Manifesto Concerning the Family, and this is posted at the Mein Kampf Project at Christogenia. And I quote, Abolition of the Family. Even the most radical flare up 
at this infamous proposal of the communists. On what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family based? On capital and private gain. In its completely developed form, this family exists only among the bourgeois. But this state of things finds its complement in the practical absence of the family among the proletarians and in public prostitution. The bourgeois family will vanish as a matter of course when its complement vanishes, and both will vanish with the vanishing of capital. That's the sick mind of Karl Marx. Marx offered a dichotomy of capitalism versus communism, as if only one or the other had to prevail. And of course, the Jew would win in either situation. Therefore, it is no mistake that as soon as the Bolsheviks took control of Russia, a Jewish-controlled Soviet central bank, subservient to the Rothschild banks, was created. Here, Marx mischaracterized the so-called bourgeois family. He lied about the concept of family among the working classes, and he outlined his intent to destroy the concept of family altogether. Notice that Marx's rhetoric completely ignores the fact that the concept of family has always been a very strong concept within our Aryan race, regardless of class. And long before either capitalism or communism were distinguished as economic concepts. Marx is the absolute proof of how far the Jewish media can make a total idiot a star. And evidently, the Jewish mind cannot even function outside of purely materialistic concerns. National Socialism, to return to Fabricius, National Socialism, for its part, does not think for one moment of denying the existence of mankind in general sake, in general for the sake of its own nation, or to accord to other nations a lesser right to exist than it itself possesses. Hitler did not want to take over the world. That, too, is Jewish propaganda. True, a conception of mankind is rejected in which national differences are no longer definable, and most of all are rejected in the international machinations of those elements without Homer country who make it their business to disintegrate nations in order to prepare the way for world revolution. Look at America today. Look at all of Europe. The family unit is absolutely devalued and practically disintegrated in, in all of Western society. And by that we know that the Jews are the victors of World War II. And that Adolf Hitler's crusade certainly was a Christian crusade because he was defending family values while the British and the Americans 
were paving the way for Jewish world supremacy and the destruction of Christian values. It's incredible to me that this isn't crystal clear to any casual observer of 20th century history. Look at the Communist Manifesto and what it says about the family. Look at the history of America in the 30 years after the Second World War and what happened to the status of the family. The Converso Jews in Christianity, long before Martin Luther, were setting Christendom up for a fall by leading it to Jewish internationalism, which is something that even Fabricius did not realize. And he continues by saying, in the same way, every kind of world policy is rejected that does not do justice to the characteristics and the sound life interests of individual nations. But a peaceful building up of international relations is being striven after so as to promote peace and allow great nations to exchange their best goods, both spiritual and material, without any traces of jealousy. This would be in perfect and complete harmony with the idea of Christian love. Indeed, the world peace which the Christian churches are striving after will perhaps be furthered more by the world policy of our Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, than has hitherto been done by the numerous international conferences held in the name of mankind. And it's absolutely true and can be proven without doubt that Adolf Hitler sought peace with England, sought peace with America, and even sought peace with that persistent agitator on his eastern border, which was Poland. And Fabricius is correct in that if true Christianity were practiced, there would indeed be world peace although the non-white races would have to be forcibly removed from every white nation. This is the true hope which all Christians should have in Christ. But legitimate Christians are indeed white, and only whites are legitimate Christians. There were no messages by the apostles of Christ to the race-mixed and non-white races of Africa, Asia, or Arabia. None. You won't find one. In Volume 1, Chapter 10 of Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler had said that the sin against blood and race is the hereditary sin in this world, and it brings disaster on every nation that commits it. And this is absolutely true. And identity Christians should know that the sin in the Garden of Eden was indeed a sin against blood and race and a transgression against God's law of kind after kind. It is only the serpent, the eternal Jew, who would attempt to tell a Christian otherwise. 
Not only is there a solid moral basis for racism and nationalism found in the proper reading of the Christian Bible, but there is no moral basis for nationalism or racism outside of the Bible. If one believes in the Jewish scheme of evolution, there is no moral basis for racism or nationalism at all. So if you're a white nationalist believing in evolution, you are a walking contradiction. Additionally, there are all sorts of archaeological, historical, and cultural proofs that the foundations of modern white civilization are indeed found in Mesopotamia and the Levant, which is the Near and Middle East. Anyone who believes that our white race sat on the frozen tundras of northern Europe for tens of thousands of years and accomplished nothing is a much bigger dupe for the Jews than any modern American Protestant. Just think about all of the infrastructure required to support life in near-Arctic climates and how no such infrastructure has ever been found in prehistoric Europe because we simply weren't there. That's not where we came from. It is past time when secular white nationalists and clowns that stick to secularism among white nationalists, even if they've been told and they should know better, like Daisy Duke and Donna Black, Secular white nationalists, it is time they are exposed and marginalized as closet whores for the filthy Jews, who have forever been the enemies of our race and our Christian God. The clowns, the clowns who evangelize the ridiculous cartoon and video game religions of neo-paganism or of Nietzsche, are not any better. Next week, Yahweh willing, we shall conclude our presentation of positive Christianity and the Third Reich. Tomorrow night, Pastor Mark Downey and the Curse of White Genocide, Part 3. Sunday afternoon, Sven Longshanks, Christogenia Europe, and ancient Judea. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.